Welcome back to another episode of the Spooky Ripteen Moth. My name is Peyton Kennedy, and this is part two of Illinois John Wayne Gacy. Um, I had for part one my little brother on. I hope you guys really liked it. Um, he's so funny because he's 14, and he was very nervous to do it, so he kind of sounded like a robot. Hi, I'm Corbin. I love him to pieces. He is the sweetest kid on earth um and he really really wanted to do part two with me but him and my mom um left before i could finish getting all the research for part two done um so that's why he's not on here this time um but he was so fun and i'm going home um to indiana for a month like all of july so hopefully him and my mom will be on more episodes with me in part two um, or in part one, we talked about the murder of Timothy and then the second murder of the unidentified body. We also talked about him, like, just raping and torturing teenage boys. And so in part two, we're going to go more into the victims that did die. Um, we're also going to get a little peek into the investigation and at this point, I do want to give you a trigger warning. There is a lot of rape involved. Um, we do talk about tying up, handcuffing. We will talk about um, the murders and being buried in crawl spaces and things like that. Um, so that is the warning. John Wayne Gacy is very, very disturbing. Um, in this, too, though, we're going to have a lot of victims with the name of John. So I'm going to call them John and then the last, like their initial of their last name. Um, so just keep that in mind as we talk. And if they are brought up, I will say their full name for a second time, just so you know who we're talking about. Um, so let's get into it. All right. So July 31st, 1975, um, a 18-year-old by the name of John Bokovich went missing he did work for John Wayne Gacy as a PDM employee, and he was from Lombard, Illinois. His car was found parked near the corner of Sheridan and Lawrence, and his jacket and wallet were found inside, and his keys were actually still in the ignition. On July 30th, 1975, John B. had actually confronted John Gacy because John Gacy owed him money from previous weeks, um, so he owed him back pay. John B.'s father had reached out to John Gacy, and John Gacy said he'd be happy to help search for John B., and told his father, sorry, he ran away. So police questioned John Gacy, and he said that John B. and two friends showed up to his house. They had demanded the back pay, um, and they had reached a compromise, and all three friends left, including John B., John B.'s parents called police a hundred times for three years because they wanted him to investigate John Gacy more, and they didn't. But then later on, when John Gacy gets caught, um, he admitted to police that he ran into John B. when he was getting out of his car, waved to get his attention. Um, John B. came up to him saying, I want to talk to you. John Gacy then invited John B. to talk in his car. Um, then he invited him over to his house and they had settled the overdue wage issue. John Gacy ended up giving John B. a drink. He talked to John B. Um, into getting his wrist cuffed because that was his like whole facade charade type deal where he would just 
continually convince his victims to be handcuffed. Um, but he handcuffed his wrist behind John B.'s back, laid him down, sat on his chest, and strangled him. He kept John B.'s body in his garage, and then he later um, was going to bury him in the crawl space, but his wife and her two daughters returned home earlier than expected, so he ended up burying John B. under the concrete floor of the tool room, um, which was just an extension of his garage in an empty space, and that's where he initially intended to dig a drain tile. So between 1975 and 1978, um, we enter what John Gacy says are his cruising years. In 1975, it, he had increased the number of times he went out to have sex with young men. Um, he committed most murders between 1976-1978. He lived alone because he finally got divorced from his wife. And um, neighbors noticed erratic changes in his behavior after the 1976 divorce. They noticed he started having teen boys over a lot. They had heard his car coming and going in the early morning. And they saw his lights turning on and off in the morning. One neighbor said, for many years, they thought they heard muffled, high-pitched screaming, shouting and crying. Um, and it kept waking her and her son up in the early morning. She also said that it came from the house adjacent to hers on West Somerdale Avenue. And in my personal opinion, if I continuously heard muffled screaming night after night and it was keeping me and my child up, especially since my child is one and a half, I would lose my freaking marbles. Am I the only one? Like, I would have called police and been like, there's, like, for the past couple nights, there's been muffled screaming coming from this house. Like, can we do a welfare check? Can something happen? My, just me. So what I'm about, the month that I'm about to talk about all happened in 1976, which was one month after his divorce, John abducted and murdered Daryl Sampson. He was 18 years old and he was last seen on April 6, 1976 in Chicago. John buried him under the dining room and he had lodged a cloth down his throat um, because in part one I talked about how John was tired of the bodies leaking and getting and staining on the carpets and stuff like that. So he started to stuff cloths down their throats. So um, when the body started to decompose, the cloths would absorb the liquids. On uh, May 14th, Randall Reffitt was 15 years old and he was uh, coming home from a dental appointment. He was last seen by his grandma. And then a few hours later... Samuel Stapleton, who was 14 years old, went missing walking home from his sister's apartment. He was friends with Randall, and they were both buried together in the cross space, and they were believed to be murdered on the same evening. On June 3rd, Michael Bonin was 17 years old, and he was from Lakeview. He went missing traveling from Chicago to, uh, walk again? John Gacy strangled Michael with a ligature, which was like either a rope, a wire, a chain, or shoelaces. He had all of those in his house, and he was buried underneath the spare bedroom. On June 13th, William Carroll, who was 16 years old, went missing. He was from uptown, um, and he was buried in a common grave in the cross space. He was the first of four victims to be murdered between June 13th and August 6th. Three of these four victims were between the ages of 16 and 17, and then there was one unidentified murder victim who happened to be an adult. On August 5th, James Hackinson was 16 years old, and he was originally from Minnesota. 
he disappeared and his he was last seen um or heard from when he called his family and they believe that it was possibly from john wayne gacy's house cause of death for him was suffocation why i don't know i was trying to say asphyxiation and suffocation at the same time um, he happened to be buried beneath 17-year-old Rick Johnson in the crawl space, and he was last seen alive on August 6th. Uh, John Wayne Gacy is thought to have murdered two other males um, between August and October of 1976. They have been unidentified. On October 24th, 1976, he killed Kenneth Parker and Michael Manero. They were both friends, and they were last seen outside a restaurant on Clark Street in Chicago. On October 26th, William Bundy disappeared. He was 19 years old. He told his family he was going to a party. They knew that he worked for John. William also died from suffocation, and he was buried under the master bedroom. So the time of death for Francis Alexander is unknown. They do know that it was between November and December of 1976, just not in an exact date. He was 21 years old, and his last contact um, was when he talked to his mom in November. And he was buried in the crawl space beneath John's office. December 1976, Gregory Godzik disappeared. He was 17 years old, and he had been working for John as a PDM employee for three weeks. Uh, his girlfriend had last seen him outside her house after he dropped her off after a date. He told family um, that John had him dig trenches for some kind of drain tiles, in quotes, in John's crawlspace, end of quotes. Uh, Gregory's car was found abandoned in Niles, Illinois. His parents and sister called John asking where Gregory was at, and John claimed he had gotten a voicemail from Gregory after he disappeared. They family had asked to hear it, and he said he deleted it. Now, we are in 1977, and on January 20th, John Sazak um, was 19 years old, and John Gacy lured him to his house. He said that he was interested in buying his car. And at this time, which I will talk about him a little bit later, Michael Rossi, who was a teenage boy, was living with John. And the reason why I mentioned that Michael Rossi was living him, living with John uh, Gacy was because John Gacy sold John Sazak's car to Michael for $300 after he strangled John Sazak in his spare bedroom. On March 15th, uh, John Prestige disappeared, and he was originally from Michigan. He was 20 years old. He was last seen leaving a restaurant, and he was also buried in the crawlspace, but he was above Francis Alexander. So I've this is the second victim I mentioned that was buried on top of someone. At this point, he had so many bodies buried in his crawlspace that he was stacking them on top of each other, which is absolutely disgusting. In the summer of 1977, John Gacy killed an unidentified young boy. He was also buried in the crossface, and unfortunately, the time of murder is unknown. On July 5th, Matthew Bowman, who was 19 years old and originally from Crystal Lake, went missing. Uh, his mom had last seen him at a train station because he was going to court for an unpaid parking ticket. In August of 1977, Michael Rossi was arrested for stealing gas in John S.'s car, which was John Sazak. Uh, the gas station attendant ended up writing down the license plate number, 
and gave it to the police. The police traced the car back to John Wayne Gacy's address. So they questioned him, and John said that John Sazak had sold him the car in February, saying that he needed to leave town. When the police double-checked the VIN, they saw that John S. did used to own the car, and after that, police just didn't do anything besides contact John um, S.'s mom to let them know that he had sold his car. At the end of 1977, he had killed six more young men, all aging between 16 and 21. The first of those victims were Robert Gilroy. He was the son of a Chicago police sergeant, and he was last seen on September 15th. He lived four blocks away from John Wayne Gacy, and he was murdered and buried in the crawlspace. Now, things get fishy. Because on September 12th, John flew to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania because he was supervising a remodeling project. And he didn't come back to Chicago until September 16th. But Robert Gilroy was last seen on September 15th. So who picked up Robert Gilroy? Who killed Robert Gilroy? It's just what I want to know. On September 25th, John Mowry disappeared. He was a former U.S. Marine who's 19 years old, and he had left his mom's house uh, to walk back to his apartments. John strangled him and buried him under the master bedroom. On October 17th, Russell Nelson disappeared. Uh, he was only 21. He was from Minnesota. He was last seen outside of Chicago's bar, um, and he had been looking for a contracting job. John murdered him and buried him beneath the guest bathroom, or bedroom, my bad, bedroom. Three weeks later, John murdered 16-year-old Robert Winch, and he buried him in a crawl space. On November 18th, Tommy Bowling disappeared. He was last seen leaving a Chicago bar. He was 20 years old, and unfortunately, well, not unfortunately about this, but unfortunately for the child, he was a dad of one, um, and John murdered him, and he was also found in the crawl space. On December 9th, David Talsma disappeared. He was 19 years old, and he was also a current U.S. Marine. He had told his mom he was going to a concert in Hammond, Indiana. Um, he never made it. John strangled Talsma with a ligature and buried him in the crawl space close to John Mowry. So now it's December 30th, and Robert Dunley was abducted. He was 19 years old, and he was at a Chicago bus stop, and it was after midnight. John held him at gunpoint drove him home, raped, tortured, and dunked Robert's head into a bathtub until he passed out. And John Wayne Gacy looked at him and said, aren't we playing fun games tonight? Now, you might think, damn, there's no way he lived. But Robert freaking lived. And he testified that he was in so much pain that he had asked John to just kill him. And John had replied to him, I'm getting round to it. Several hours later, John Wayne Gacy dropped Robert off at his workplace and said if, it, if he went to police, they wouldn't believe Robert. In 1978, John Wayne Gacy found out he had syphilis and he also started releasing people. But then later on, Robert Donnelly reported the sexual assault. And on January 6th, John was questioned by police and he admitted to having you know, a relationship with Robert, but he didn't say he raped him. He said they had a slave sex relationship, um, which basically when I really looked that up to see what it was, just so I had it right, 
it basically said it was just BDSM, which I don't mean it was just BDSM because that's not what happened. But sex slave, slave sex was just a more gross way to say BDSM. And there's nothing wrong with BDSM. I just want to make you aware. If you are into that, there's nothing wrong with it. I just don't like that he said it was slave sex because I, because he raped him. Um, he did say it was consensual and, um, he said the reason why Robert Donnelly might have gone to them was because, in quotes, he didn't pay the kid the money he had promised, in quotes. And so basically what it came down to was charges were never filed because the DA thought John was more believable than Robert and the police also believed John Wayne Gacy over Robert. So on February 16th, William Kindred disappeared. He was 19 years old and he told his fiance he was going to the bar. His fiance didn't know John and John picked him up, murdered him, and he was the last victim to be buried in the crawl space because he's run out of room. On March 24th or 21st, Jeffrey Regnall uh, went missing. John lured Jeffrey into his car with a joint, chloroformed him, and from what I read, any time that the chloroform, like, didn't work, like, he was waking back up from it, John would just chloroform him again. So, they drove to John's house. He restrained his arms and legs in a pillory device, which was attached to the ceiling, and his feet were restrained by something else on the floor. The pillory device, because I was like, what the fuck is that? It is... Basically, like, you know when you're watching an old-timey move and they're, like, off with his head and they put him in that contraption where you put your arms in and your head through it and then it folds down over and you're just, like, your arms are just, like, hanging there with your head? I hope that made sense. That's what that was that he put him in. Um, In my notes, I said it was an old-school head cutoff thingy to remind myself to describe it. So hopefully I did describe it well enough for you. If I didn't, please look it up. And then maybe what I said would make sense. Um, he told Jeffrey that he was in total control and he could do whatever he wanted to him. He raped and tortured him with lit candles, whips, and pliers. And then John drove Jeffrey to Lincoln Park. He dumped him, but Jeffrey was still alive. And when he woke up from being chloroformed, he was completely dressed, but he had been raped by so many objects that his rectum was bleeding profusely. And somehow, Jeffrey got to his girlfriend's place. He went to the hospital and he had to stay there for six days. Um, and he also told police that he thought someone else was there. He remembered the Oldsmobile. He explained the Kennedy Expressway. He told about all the side streets he went on, but the police did not investigate John at all. So because of this, he did his own investigation. Jeffrey's got some real good friends because two of his friends helped him watch the Cumberland exit of the expressway where he was taken from. And in April, Jeffrey saw John's car him and his friends followed him to 8213 West Summerdale Street, where John lived, to confirm that it was his house. And when he told police, the police did nothing again. And eventually, uh, Jeffrey was able to testify against John in court. 
And when he was going through his encounters and how gruesome they were, he ended up throwing up on the stand, which I want to give him a huge hug, a huge hug. Uh, so like I said earlier, at this point, there was no more room in the crawl space. That's why he had let, he was dumping bodies and he had told police he thought about putting them in the attic, but he worried about the bodies leaking. So that's when he started disposing bodies off the I-55 bridge into the Deplaine River. And he said he threw five bodies in the river, but police only found four. The first known victim was Timothy O'Rourke, um, to be like thrown in the river. He was murdered in mid-June. He had left his apartment on Dover Street to go purchase cigarettes. And before he was killed, he had told his roommate that a contractor on the northwest side had offered him a job. On November 4th, John Wayne Gacy killed Frank Landigan. He was 19 years old and he was found naked close to an inlet in the Deplaines River. Um, they found him with underwear stuffed down his throat and he was actually found by two duck hunters in the Cajonan on November 12th. I really hope I pronounced that right. I'm really sorry if I didn't. On November 24th, James Mazzara uh, disappeared. He was 20 years old and it was Thanksgiving Day. He had just left having dinner with his family and he was telling them that he was doing okay, um, that he started working in construction and that things were going okay. He was last seen carrying a suitcase walking towards Buckhouse Square. And now we're on December 11th, the day John got caught. But it didn't happen like you think it happened. So, like, it's not like they finally decided to start investigating. It wasn't like that at all. On December 11th, John went to the Nissan pharmacy in De Plains, um, and he was talking with the owner, like, for remodeling. Um, and the owner's name was Phil Tort. He had already remodeled. But they were talking about the remodeling he had done. So as he was like talking to Phil, there was a worker walking around who was 15 years old and his name was Robert Peast. And John was like, hey, you want a job? And he was like, well, I already have a job. And John's like, well, how much do you make? And he goes, $2.50 an hour, $2.50 an hour. The 70s were a wild time. Which, what I tell you, well, okay, so John told him that he could pay him $5 an hour. Now, when I tell you in 1970, John was paying $5 an hour, why in 2016 was a minimum wage, if it's still not the minimum wage, in Indiana, $7.25? Someone please tell me that. Because I see why they'd want to work with John. $5 an hour back in the 70s? Hell yeah. Robert had also mentioned to John that he was trying to save up for a Jeep. And John was like, yeah, the $5 an hour, we'll get you there. So uh, John left telling Robert to come by his house to sign some paperwork. And Robert's mom was coming to pick him up so they could celebrate her birthday. And Robert asked her to wait because a contractor wanted to talk to him about a job. She told Robert okay and that she would come get him whenever he needed her to like come pick her up, meet her somewhere, whatever. Um, so he left at the pharmacy at 9 p.m. and he promised to be back soon. He went to John's house and unfortunately after 10 p.m. John murdered him. So John said, this was John Wayne Gacy's account, he asked Robert whether there was anything he wouldn't do for the right price. And Robert said he didn't mind working hard. 
John told him hustling could bring in good money. And then John did his whole charade about the handcuffs and talked Robert into putting them on. John then told Robert, in quotes, I'm going to rape you and you can't do anything about it, end quote. He placed a rope around Robert's neck and he said that Robert began crying and kept saying how scared he was. Um, And he also said that while Robert was dying because, you know, he had suffocated him, he got on a phone call from a business acquaintance. After Robert died, he stuffed cloth down his throat. And that night at 11.30 p.m., Robert's mom reported him missing, and he was the last victim in the river. He was found on April 9th, 1979. And the fucked up thing is, John Wayne Gacy would donate his victim's clothes to the Salvation Army. So he donated Robert's clothes, and then he also would keep trophies such as bracelets, rings, and license. Um, From Robert, he kept a receipt for photographs, which were from the pharmacy that Robert worked at. And they later found out that it was actually his girlfriend's. I'm going to get into that. But he kept the receipt. So the investigation started because he... John Wayne Gacy was last seen with Robert. Plenty of people were at that pharmacy that's on there. And, of course, he was known for being around teenage boys. So, on December 12th, the police called him, and he admitted to seeing Robert, but he denied everything else. Lieutenant Joseph Kozenzak was assigned to the case. He had a son who was the same age as Robert. They went to the same school, and he had only been named chief of police for about a year And he was fully prepared to get John for everything to do with Robert. Because at this point, they think they're only looking for Robert. And he felt, because he was a dad, compelled to find out everything that happened. So when he was looking into the pharmacy, because that's where Robert worked, he found out that it had been remodeled and it was done by John Wayne Gacy and the PDM contractors. He also found witnesses who identified John as the one talking to Robert about a job with contracting. Like they overheard him say. Do you want a job contracting? Um, and then they also heard him mention that Robert could get the Jeep he had been wanting. So now this is clicking for Lieutenant Kozenak because Robert's mom said that he had called a few minutes before she was supposed to come get him saying he was going to talk with a contractor about a job. So Lieutenant Kozenak calls up the police almost at office, the police department, and was like, hey, I need you to look at this, this, and this, and let's see if we can find similar victims to Robert, because I don't think this is the first time he's done this. So at 9 p.m. on December 13th, Lieutenant Kozenak and three other officers knocked on John Wayne Gacy's door, and they they told him they wanted him to go down for the station for questioning. And John said he couldn't because his mom was going to call because his uncle had just died. And basically, Lieutenant Kozenak was like, you can either call now or you come with us and you just have to call her back later tonight. And John looked at Lieutenant Kozenak and goes, you do you not have any respect for the dead? Sir, sir, sir. You killed 33 young men. 33. And... And now, who, 
who doesn't have respect for the dead? Oh, sir. Um, so at this point, they're looking for Robert. And he is up in the attic, dead. Just, John is trying to wait until he can get out to the river and dump him. And so, basically, the police were like, alright, just come when your mom, after your mom calls. At 11 p.m., okay, that was at 9 p.m., at 11 p.m., John called asking if the police still needed him to come down for questioning. And Lieutenant Kozenak was like, yes, we're not going away. Yes, we still need you to come down. And a couple hours go by, it's now 1 a.m., and there's still no John. And at 3.20, he finally showed up to the police department covered in mud. 3.20 a.m. covered in mud and that is because he was dumping Robert and the Deplaine River at that point so he goes up to the front desk and he's like hey I'm here to be questioned and the person at the front desk was like yeah they're not here it's 3.20 in the morning please please leave you also look like that and John was like well when are they going to be back and she's like sometime in the morning so then John comes back at 9.30 a.m. and Lieutenant Kozenak's there and that's where the questions begin. So obviously John Wayne Gacy denies everything. It doesn't go anywhere. He leaves and Lieutenant Kozenak has ordered a background check and all previous charges came back up which included him being arrested and serving time in jail for sodomy of a teen boy. So he's like, we gotta go. So he went to Judge Marvin J. Peters requesting a search warrant. And Judge Peters was like, bet, you got it, signed off and it, handed it to him. So they began searching um, the home, believing that John was only holding Robert captive. But then a neighbor came over and asked what was going on because nosy neighbors, that was my dog, Leia. And, um... They told, like, this neighbor told police that there was an addict in a crawl space. And police didn't think anything about it. And they just took his car, which was the Oldsmobile, took his work van, and then took a pickup truck that he used for his contracting company. And if they had just checked the attic and the crawl space, they would have found everything. They had a search warrant for the house already. They, If they had just listened to the neighbor, they would have found Robert in the attic, and they would have found all, all the dead bodies in the crawl space. Um, what they did find in his house when they didn't look in the attic or crawl space, this is a very long list. Some of it's disgusting. All of it's disgusting. Um, so I just kind of want to give you a warning now because we will be talking about a dildo covered in blood. So please keep that in mind. So they found a piece of rug. And when they flipped it over, well, they found rug, a rug, obviously. And when they flipped it over, they found stains on the, like, on the bottom. So the top was completely clean, but the bottom, whatever had soaked through, was staining. So they took that for testing. They found clothing that was too small to be John's. They found yellow underwear in a bathroom closet that was too small to be John's. They found colored photos of drugstores. They found an address book. They found dozens of books on homosexuality and pedestry, where one of the books was called Pretty Boys Must Die. They found porn films, bottles of pills, a syringe, and hypodermic needles, which were in the bathroom. 
They found police badges in his office. They found a six millimeter Beretta starter pistol in his office. They found an 18 inch dildo that 16 inches, 15 to 16 inches of it was covered in blood and that was found in his bedroom. They also found a 39 inch two by four with two holes drilled into each end, a bunch of different driver's license, a class ring um, that was from 1975 from Maine West High School engraved with JAS on it, the Nissan Pharmacy film receipt, which was in the trash can, and a 36-inch section of nylon rope. They also um, gave one of their sniffing dogs a shirt of Robert's, and when they smelled it, the dog actually hit on the car, and they found Robert's hair in his car. And what we find out is from Robert's mom, and it's find out in a couple of days, but I'm just going to say it now. Robert's mom had said that the film receipt was likely Kim Byers, who was Robert's girlfriend. And when the police called her and asked, she was like, yes, I was wearing his jacket a couple weeks ago. I was cold. I had forgot mine. He was being a gentleman. Um, and I left my receipt in his coat pocket. This is the serial number gave the serial number to him and the serial number matched the receipt which contradicted that John had never been around Robert Pice because the receipts serial numbers matched and that's where I'm gonna end today I definitely know that last week's episode and this week's episode could have been combined but because I had my family here I didn't have as much time as I wanted to research and so I knew for sure I had a good solid you know research for the first 30 minutes and I knew that I had a good solid now for the second part the third part I'm researching it'll be out definitely by next week um and that one is just more into the investigation that one's gonna be like court cases things like that um how he finally confessed stuff like that on Monday, you will have our Indiana video, so or video podcast episode. So it's going to go part one, obviously part two, and then Indiana's just one part with a special guest. And uh, then part three should be out by next Thursday. So it'll be part one, part two, Indiana, part three. And part three is finally the justice that those boys deserved. So then... Indiana, Iowa. We're going to be on Iowa. And I haven't figured out who I want to do yet. There's a couple people that I've like been kind of looking at. So we'll find out. We'll find out. I always forget to plug the Instagram for the podcast, which is the spooky underscore ripped jean mom. The Instagram's really cool to follow because you can see pictures of the victims. I post pictures of what the killers look like so you can see kind of like put faces to names that I talk about and things like that. And then um, you can always DM me if you have a case that you want to hear. I also have episodes where we do spooky, like ghost stories, things like that, which I need to do another one of those. So send ones that you want to hear about. I also kind of want to start talking about different conspiracy theories. My little brother wants us to do um, an episode about Jeffrey Epstein, so um, things like that. So you're always free to DM me if you want to see something. 
if there's a case that you've been dying to hear about, don't be afraid to send that my way. And that's it for today. I hope you guys have a wonderful and safe weekend because this is getting posted as soon as I'm done. I love you all. Bye.